Hey everybody, we have a very, very special guest today. Her name is Chloe. Chloe, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Chloe Reinhardt. Uh, I spent my high school uh, years being a peer sex educator with Planned Parenthood. Um, I was part of the PG-13 Players Program. Uh, we consist of a program with uh, theater and sex ed. We go through a yearly training um, about contraception, sex ed, STIs, and uh, emotional intimacy, vulnerability, sexuality, the whole plethora of things. Um, and we are kind of the loophole of Planned Parenthood into schools. Yeah, and it's it's so, so interesting. And I remember hearing you talk about it the first time, just being like kind of enthralled with the whole process. So what made you get involved and how did you get involved in this? Yeah, for sure. So, um, when I was in seventh grade, my church, I go to a very progressive church, uh, did this thing. They called it sex camp, which not a very good title, (laughs) Um, but it consisted of going on a retreat and you, we meet this, uh, I don't know what she was, some sort of like, she was a sex educator. I don't know if that was her actual profession, um, right. but we learned not just about like contraceptives and STIs, but we learned about consent and what makes healthy sex besides the physical aspect, but like the emotional aspect and finding coming to terms with yourself and your own relationship and your own sexuality. Um, and after that, I was, I was like hooked. I was like, wow, I've never heard any of this. And I, was just so just surprised that I I had never been introduced to this world and I, I felt like I needed to tell my friends. Right. <laughs> and um, after that, I when I freshman year, there was a junior who was also in PG-13 players and she was going off and when she ended up graduating, she talked to me about it and gave me the application and said, hey, I... I really want to recommend you for this because I think you would be a great fit. And I applied. I There was a meeting to set up. You have to have a setup with your meeting and your parents for, you know, legal reasons. Right. Um, and that's when I started. And the next summer I had a training um, and we began our work, which starts off as a um, training, continuing of the training um and we learn how to access our information to give to our peers um our condom distribution um and then later in the year we write a skit um which is kind of the fun part about uh different situations uh, one year we did one about abortion about one about um a lesbian who uh, was very feminine, so people were just, you know, like, you're not, you can't be a lesbian, you're too much of a girl, you know? Right. And we just do topics that are just maybe not as much spoken about, and it's really fun. And I'm pretty sure you can still find most of those skits um, online. Like, last year, because of COVID, we had to do it, like, we did it, like, a FaceTime style. That looks like, so cute. Over Instagram and FaceTime. Yeah, it was great. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of, how the PT 13 player works. Yeah, and I mean, before we get into like more of the information about all of like what you know and what you've like learned and what you kind of disperse to people, how do you feel like people respond when you kind of like 
first initiate conversations with people about these things because I think that one of the issues is that we kind of have created this perception that having a conversation about it will be so taboo and so like stigmatized Uh but I wanted to know like if in reality you feel like it actually is that way right um well honestly for me I have just had the same conversation so many times that I just feel like I can talk about anything, especially to my peers. Right. Um, And the first thing I always say when I'm having a conversation is that everything happening in this conversation will stay between me and them and then my boss, if necessary, or a health provider. Um, And I think that, like, kind of starts, makes it comfortable for my friend or my peer um, to start talking about it because they've never gotten the opportunity to speak in a way where it's a confined safe space yeah they're or they're afraid that their parents are going to find out or their friends are going to find out um and so it, it it takes a level of the taboo down definitely right and um you know it is uncomfortable when you don't have these conversations I mean I I definitely still get uncomfortable sometimes talking about with you know adults or my parents Um, but it's just, I think the biggest part is the being in a private conversation where you feel safe and you feel heard and you feel like nothing will stay outside this bubble. Um, yeah, it definitely makes it feel less taboo and a more like normal conversation. Right. And I mean, kind of like going off of that and just jumping into sex ed and, I mean, part of that, I feel like, is why sex ed is so important. But can you just first give us, like, a description of, like, what is sex ed for people who just don't really understand, like, that term? Yeah. So sex ed is the education of safe safe sex habits surrounding not just pregnancy, but STIs and the emotional vulnerability aspect. Um, And so, like, how do we see that? Because I know there's obviously been, like, a lot of conversation about, like, sex ed and what is, like, ethical sex ed and good sex ed. Mm -hmm. And so how do we see it? taught like in the U.S. but specifically like where we are in Tennessee and how is that kind of compared to what is like good sex ed? Right um so in Tennessee a lot of people think the whole problem is what's restricted but in my eyes I think the problem is what's required the only thing that is required is abstinence teaching and because that's the only thing required a lot of teachers don't take the extra step to teach things that are permitted which what is permitted is STIs um and health-related problems. That's the only thing that's permitted. Um, But a lot of the teachers only say what's in required, which is abstinence. Um, And the curriculum can be decided by local education agencies. So Tennessee gives the counties their own um, kind of way of deciding that curriculum. And there is a written opt-out, which... um, you know, it gives the guardian the ability to opt out their child, not the child itself themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just one thing I feel isn't, I just feel like it's not the best way because it's just like giving the parent the control and there's right. already such a, you know, there's this whole conversation where parents thinking, I can teach them myself at home which, you know, may be true, but there is just a level of, uh, you know, education the parents have or what they feel is appropriate for their kids, which may be just them endangering their kids. You know, kids who have less sex education or 
have uh, less conversations about these sort of things are more uh, susceptible to coercion and um, sexual abuse. So I really feel as if we do have a very limited sex education in Tennessee that even though it is just abstinence and maybe STIs and sexual health, that parents should let their children in there because at least they will be having these conversations instead of being in like the dark about it. Right. Absolutely. And it's like you said, like it really is also contingent on like the amount of sex ed education that the parents had, which Mm -hmm. like that generational, like kind of ignorance about sex education, exactly. especially in, I mean, religion is not like, I'm not saying that it's a problem, but I think that it, in some ways, the way that we have kind of used purity culture to kind of like Mm -hmm. stunt speaking about sex has also like affected, like you said, I mean, it can create environments where like abuse isn't sometimes recognized or talked about. And there's just like not a lot of conversation about consent or STIs or contraceptives or all of that. And I mean, we're kind of getting into like why sex ed is important, but do you have like other things to add about why you feel that sex ed is so, so important? Yeah. um, Well, I also like to touch on the part of um, using biological phrases to talk about parts uh, like sexual anatomy, um, especially in home life. Um, When I grew up, we talked talked about our penis and our vagina, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. but in a lot of homes, there are, you know, nicknames they call for a vagina or a penis, like, you know, someone's cookies, someone's poodle, someone's, you know, just right. like these ridiculous words. Um, and this is just highly just dangerous because these children don't know how to talk about their own parts and and they don't know how to, um, you know, go and report abuse because they don't know what they're talking about or they they go up to a teacher and they go, oh, he touched my cookie, you know, you know, Johnny touched my cookie, and the teacher's like, okay, well, you know, she doesn't know what she's talking about, you know? Exactly. Um, And it's just, it's just another dangerous level that parents think they're protecting their kids when they're really just putting them in a really dangerous, vulnerable spot. Right. And can you talk a little bit about like consent and the conversation around consent that I feel like we often don't really have in our schools and just kind of like what that looks like in how you would phrase it and just kind of like what you've learned? Yeah. Um, consent to me is, is very explicit. You know, of course you can have consensual sex without the verbal consent, but always, 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 even if it's before the moment, during the moment, after, just check and make sure that you guys are both in it. Because even if you give consent, you can always, always take that consent back. You know, you maybe you're, you're feeling, yeah, like, I, I'm so excited for this. I love this. And then you start and you're like, no, you know, and that's totally valid. You can, re- you can retract your consent and it still be valid. Right. No, I and one thing that like came up and kind of like reminded me of um, like what we kind of miss if we don't have sex education and at least like comprehensive sex education in like schools and especially mm-hmm. regarding consent is like we kind of learn things from media where there's this like hypersexualized um, like depiction of teenage girls. I mean, I think of shows kind of like Euphoria or like other shows like exactly. that where it's like consent is a very like 
loose and like almost like lack of consent is sometimes romanticized and like the Mm -hmm. way that women are kind of taught that they need to submit I think it's a really dangerous thing if we don't have these conversations in a safe place right like the um like romanticizing like hot and heavy just like spur the moment sex with no verbal no you know no consent um especially yeah like you were saying in euphoria that you know it you know and it is it 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 can be exciting and that can be consensual but it's just not safe portrayal of safe sex right and I've also had conversations with friends where it's like I think that especially like young people watching that kind of like learn that sex has to be this very like BDSM-esque like mm-hmm. as in like vanilla sex or things like that are bad or negative or like will not turn people on and I think that it really kind of stunts people's own ex- exploration of their sexualities too in a really really dangerous way where I think that it kind of forces when kids to learn that they have to like perform in sex rather than like be in tune and enjoy it with themselves right and, and another thing oh I'm sorry oh no 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 go ahead um and another thing I like to touch on is just, like, the concept of virginity, which I just, I I honestly hate it because it just puts this pressure that you have this virginity. It's something you have and you lose, mm-hmm. which is just totally a social concept. And, um, you know, and, and there's also, like, in the media, there's this whole, you know, portrayal of you got to lose your virginity, you know? Like, it's a big deal of your life. Like, it's going to be amazing. Like, your cherry's going to pop, you know? Um, and it's just, like virginity the loss of virginity is totally based on your individual meaning of virginity it can be penetration it can be fondling it can be mutual masturbation you know and it's just definitely something I've I've seen with my peers that it just like is a stressor in their life and it doesn't have to be you know right no absolutely and I mean it also makes me think of like virginity and I think male identifying people versus female identifying people too as Mm -hmm. well like especially I think that there's a lot of shame put on women who have lost their virginity early or women who have multiple partners that isn't necessarily put there on people who identify as like male um and I think like that's also something that I think isn't talked about enough and I mean especially like I know that there are some places that like whatever sex that they do have they separate um like girls and boys at least like by Mm -hmm. traditional standards and I think that that's also really really harmful because I mean if you don't know about you know at least like what we commonly look at is like the other person and it's also like I mean I think you could probably touch on this that a lot of like we're missing a lot of conversation about LGBTQIA plus Uh, like conversations when it comes to sex ed as well and how that's really destructive right yeah and and like you were saying, the whole um, viewing the different perspectives of, like, a woman losing her virginity, it's more like, oh, she's a whore, like, she's a skank. When it when it's a male, it's more this, like, attaboy moment, you know? Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's just, like, it's definitely that is just, like, our society and our media that is that comes from all that. Um, but yeah yeah no and I mean kind of moving into like the next topic a little bit of like contraceptives because I think this is also like something that's not really talked about enough and I know like that well one like birth control I think is not just used as a contraceptive sorry no you're totally fine um and that I think that like a lot of times like when you hear like 
a young girl would be like, oh, I'm on birth control or something like that. Like people are like, oh, like she's doing what, and it's like, one, it's not always that. But when women are looking for contraceptives um, or just people with vaginas are looking for contraceptives, um, can you talk a little bit about that? And also like, I know that there's been like conversation about male contraceptives, but like what are different subtypes and like specifics of certain types of contraceptives? Right. Okay. So I like to kind of like put them into categories of hormonal and non-hormonal. Okay. Um, the hormonal ones are definitely more prevalent in society or what you'll see your peers taking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely, let's start with the biological male, um, uh, contraceptives. There's male condoms. That's all we have right now. Right. And that's, right. That's 98% effective in perfect use, but in typical use, it's about 87%. Okay. Is that just through, like, misuse or, like... Yes, or um, they don't know the application process or, um, you know, holes in condoms. It, It is mostly on user error, though. Okay, and how would you recommend that people kind of, like... Like, are there things that people can look up online to figure out how to make them more effective and, like, fix those errors? Or, like, yeah. what would you recommend? Well, there's this method that I learned um, in the players program called OPRA. OPRA stands for open, pinch, roll, action, hold. So, <laughs> open is... Uh, Love the I Oprah guess- method. Love Oprah teaching us safe sex. No, it's the best way to remember, and I love explaining it to people. Um, you open the condom, you pinch, and this is a good step that people miss often. Um, you pinch the top of the condom before applying to leave um, room for the sperm. Okay. And then you roll it on the penis, um, and then A is for action. And then H is for hold. You're going to hold the penis while you roll off the condom. So the Oprah method. That's so interesting. And yeah. I think and I think also, like, I think that people don't realize, like, that's a big percentage difference, like, over 10%. And I'm like, oh, if, yeah. if you're using that, I mean, as some people do, as, like, their main method. Like, I think right. that you really need to be sure you're doing it right. Exactly. For sure. And moving into, like, more of, like, the female ones, like, what are some of those as well? Yeah. So there's, I think, uh, one thing I like to say is, like, people think that, um, you know, the pill is kind of their only option when there's so many options. Um, So if we start off with hormonal, we do have the pill. There are two types of pill. We have combination and then the progesterone only. Um, Combination is more effective, and it's but only because it's easier to have perfect use. There isn't a time limit. You just need to take it every day. Okay. With the progesterone only, it is kind of time sensitive where you have to take it in about like same two hour period every day for it to have perfect use. Okay. Yes. Um, and I don't really know exactly why you would pick one or the other. Maybe it's insurance reasons or, um, just personal, less hormones. Um, <clears throat> the next one we have is the injection or the shot. It is over 90%, 99% effective, and it is something you take about, like, every 13 weeks. And it's um, administrated by a doctor. Okay. Are there any, like, m- like immediate drawbacks to any of these? That, oh, like for sure. 
Yeah. Um, so I like to say that no birth control is going to be the same for anyone else. Right. Everybody's body is different. The pill might work wonderfully for your best friend and be awful for you. Mm-hmm. So it's all about trial and error. I'm sure especially um, with like hormonal ones that can be just very yeah. different. Exactly. You know, it can cause, you know, depression, heat flashes, weight gain, you know, the plethora of like right. just annoying. Like, like what you've seen when you see effects. like the women pull out like the huge list of birth control side effects and just. Yes. And yeah. it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do want to get in the rest of the hormonal ones because I feel like there are a lot that people don't know about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the next we do is the implant, which can last about thir- three years and it's in your arm. It is about 99% effective um, because it is put in by a provider. So there is no um, user error. Um, same with the IUD. It is um, placed inside your u- uterus. Your cervix is opened. You can have that for about a three to five years and it's over 99% per- per- percent effective as well. Mm-hmm. Then there's the ring, which is something you change yourself. You have to be comfortable with touching your own um, vag- vaginal and like vaginal canal because um, you do change it every three weeks. Um, and then there's the patch, which is something you change yourself. You put it on the back of your arm or on your shoulder, wherever you feel comfortable, um, and you change it weekly. It's over 99% when it is used perfect. Okay. Yeah, and then we move to non-hormonal, which um, we do have the copper IUD, um, which is over 99% effective, and it is able to use 9 to 10-year period, um, but it does cause heavy periods, heavy bleeding, you know, but there isn't that, like, hormones aspect where people are really uncomfortable with having that amount of hormones in their body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, we do have, uh, you know, female condoms as well, uh, which are about 95% effective with perfect use. Um, There's also spermicide, which can be used with condoms usually. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there is a newly newly FDA-approved, similar to spermicide, it's called Fexi. It's a gel you administer about 30 minutes up to um, before sex. And it's non-hormonal, and it's about 86% effective with perfect use. So it's definitely one that you would want to double up with. Okay, yeah. And can you talk a little bit about, like, doubling up? Like, do you recommend it? Like, what kind of, like, would be best practice, would you say? Yeah. Um, so doubling up is kind of a word, a phrase that I like to use lightly because I don't want people to think they should be doubling up on condoms or right 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 right. doubling up we mean multiple methods of like yeah (laughs) right it should be used with like a mix between a hormonal and a non-hormonal that um like using condoms with your pill or condoms with your IUD um and it or even just spermicide with one of these um you do have a pretty high effectiveness rate with most hormonals but um, a lot of people experience anxiety not using a condom or having their partner finish inside them. Um, so what I would say is just figure out what makes your anxiety closest to, like, n- little, you know? Right. Like, it's just, it's all about, you know, if somebody tells me that they're using the IUD and they're not using condoms, I personally would say they're probably okay um, for the most part since it is about a 
0.12% chance of getting pregnant, but their anxiety might think different. And then I would say, maybe try the pullout method with the IUD or do condoms. You know, um, I wouldn't necessarily rely on pullout method or condoms by themselves, but with the IUD, it can definitely lessen like anxiety. Absolutely. And what do you feel like are some like misconceptions that people have about using contraceptives? Um, yeah, uh, I definitely hear a lot that it's going to mess up your fertility in the future, which is absolutely wrong. Um, people think that when they have the IUD or they take the pill, it will, um, make it harder for them to get pregnant later on, but it's actually right after you stop taking the pill or right after you get your IUD or implant removed, you are um, able to get pregnant. Um, another one is that they can't get it without their parents' consent, which is absolutely wrong. Uh, I think right now in Tennessee, you can get prescribed birth control without parents' consent at age 13. I may be wrong about that, though. Um, but if you go to your local Planned Parenthood or, um, like, public health clinic, they probably um, will have options for you. But most of the time, if you want to keep it more discreet, you're going to have to pay out of pocket instead of insurance or credit card. Right. And can you talk a little bit also, like, about Plan B and just what that is and, like, yeah. when it works, like, how it works and all of that? Because I think that, like, it's something that you hear about, but I don't think that everybody knows how to use it, like, what it does, all of that. Mm-hmm. So people might compare it to the um, abortion, medical abortion pill, when it's actually more similar to, I would say, like the combined pill that you take um, for birth control, because it uses a similar hormones to um, stop ovulation and just like stunt the, um, the fertilization process. So there's no like actual, uh, nothing's happening with the sperm or the egg it's just stopping kind of the function that happens to make the fertilization process okay and then I know that there was like something about plan b not working like on ovulation like is that kind of the right story behind that or like is there something more that somebody should know about like when it's effective when it's not um I've never heard that in Fact, okay because that I, might be I that don't... like that's the thing is like it literally could be so wrong because like I just saw it like on the internet like on TikTok or something like that and I was I, like what <laughs> I definitely I'm gonna ask my boss about that because I've never heard that but maybe I mean what I like to say is that um if you are there is like a effectiveness over a certain like weight range um I don't exactly know the weight but I know it is it isn't ineffective, but it is less effective after a certain weight. Um, and another thing I do think that is kind of a, a something on TikTok or like on Instagram is that like about antibiotics mixing with your birth control and making right. it ineffective, which for the pill, that is um, true. But for the rest of the hormonal IUDs or um, implants or injections, that shouldn't be a problem. Okay, perfect. And why do you think that we've focused so much on, like, contraceptive use for only, like, bodies that are able to have kids instead of, you know, like, men or people that have the other (laughs) genitalia? Like, why do you feel like that has been such a big thing? And, like, also, especially what we talked about before, like, as it relates to, like, sexuality for women, too. Like, why Mm -hmm. do you think that that's kind of been our focus? Right. So we absolutely have the science 
to like come up with some sort of you know biological male contraceptive besides condoms but they think the focus is on biological male a female um much more because just of the social construct that the woman is going to like care for this child or because they have to carry the child to term that it's kind of like their responsibility which is totally just bizarre you know right um and i think that um you know the whole responsibility on the woman is just something that is just outdated and just is now something that we're just you know we just think is the normal absolutely no i 100 percent agree and then kind of like wrapping up this section like what is safe sex and like what is the importance of it for both like people who are heterosexual but also for people who aren't like what is the importance of safe sex besides just like to prevent pregnancy which I feel like is how we normally view it like I was saying at the beginning there's so much more to safe sex than just the physical aspect of course be careful with um, STIs and pregnancies but also just be careful with your emotional stability and your emotional vulnerability because sex is a big step and you're sharing a part of yourself with someone else and that's that's totally fine and it doesn't make you it's not a whole like your body is a temple situation but it's more of just like make sure you're ready and make sure that you're okay with sharing some sort of intimacy with another person right absolutely and Mm -hmm. um kind of like going into one of one thing that's been really really talked about recently especially with all of the talk about roe v wade and the opinion and we're not going to get into much of the law about anything just because that's obviously really, really complex. And although you obviously know so, so much about all of this, it's like, can't expect, like, you're not a law expert. And we can't mm-hmm. expect you to know everything about that. But can you talk a little bit about when abortion may be necessary aside from just like choice, which is totally valid, but like aside from someone just not wanting to follow through with a pregnancy? Right. Um, so, like, going into choice, there's totally, like, subcategories of why they may not choose, you know? Um, maybe they might be a single mother, or they can't afford it, or, you know, their lifestyle is too complex. But there also is conversations of, like, rape and incest, which is one that's brought up quite a bit. Um, but there's also these, like, underlying uh, reasons that people don't talk about. Maybe the child has some sort of condition that they won't make it to term, or they won't have the ability to live outside the uterus by themselves. But most importantly, the biggest reason we should think about is that the mother or the woman carrying this this fetus shouldn't have it to have an explanation, you know? Right. It doesn't need to have a reason. The reason is they don't want to. Right, absolutely. And, I mean, like you said, like, you grew up going to progressive church and I did as well. And I, I think that there have been a lot of meaningful conversations that I've had of people who personally would not get an abortion themselves, um, but who do not believe that this is something that we can enforce upon people. Cause it's very much mm-hmm. like a separation of church and state thing where it's like you, this is really kind of crossing a line in terms of like laws that we've seen being very, very harsh on abortion access, like is very much reaching that line and how we wouldn't accept this in other areas and how it's like really concerning that this is something that we're seeing now as well mm-hmm. um and I wanted you to, I mean kind of like going off of that a little bit like what are some common misconceptions that you think that people have about abortion 
Um, I think one of the biggest one is how abortions are um, actually like gone through with. Um, if we want to, I can actually start and talk about the difference between the two types of abortion. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So there are two types of abortion. There is medical abortion, which is the pill, and there's surgical abortion. And usually how abortion works is you have an assessment appointment where they assess your uh, mental health uh, because this is a very big procedure, you know. Um, maybe it's minimalistic on the um, actual surgical side, but emotionally there's a lot going to happen. Right. And so if you are doing a medical abortion, you can do that up to 13 weeks of pregnancy, um, and it takes about two pills. Um, you take them one or two days apart. The first one is mifepristone. It blocks the pregnancy hormone. And then two days later, you take misoprostol, which is um, you can apply it in your cheek, under your tongue, or actually in the vagina. Um, and it takes about four to six hours to actually become an effect. And it it breaks down the le- uterus lining. So the abortion is actually complete and the womb um, will fall out of the vaginal canal. Okay. Um, the next is a surgical abortion, which there are kind of two different ways. Um, there's the vacuum and suction, which is up to 14 weeks, and it takes about five to two minutes, and you can go at home in a few hours. And then there's the dilation and evacuation, which is post-14 weeks, which is you don't see that very often. It's a lot later in the pregnancy than people realize that um, they don't want this child anymore. Um uh, and that will be post 14 weeks used with forceps. Um, and it's about a 10 to 20 minute procedure and you can go home the day of. So both are pretty minimalist, minimally invasive. It's just definitely the emotional aspect that makes it harder. Right. And I mean, talking about like the emotional aspect, which we're about to get into, I, I think that obviously this is a really, really like a conversation that I think everyone needs to be careful having because it, the thing is, I don't think that, I think that there are very few people on either side that are really think that like they're doing something wrong. Like, I mean, everybody that I think that has an opinion about this issue believes that their opinion is right. And so I think that one thing that, um, I think that needs to be more of a conversation, especially from the pro-choice side is that, I mean, I think that people who are pro-choice and I think that both of us are pretty clearly but I think that there's a recognition of this like the fact that this is a very burdensome process for the person Mm -hmm. getting an abortion and then it's not just this like very robotic like methodical view of like the fetus that it is a really emotional and like Mm -hmm. grieve heavy process that yeah, nobody wants to have an abortion, you absolutely. know? It's not something they actively seek out. Absolutely. And so can you talk a little bit about, like, the emotional support and just kind of, like, that aspect of the whole process? Because I think that that yeah. is a misconception. Right. So um, if you are getting an, an abortion at Planned Parenthood, they do ask to have, like, an emergency contact or, like, some sort of support that you have after so you know that you have, like, a safe, comfortable time coming home from this procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that there are support groups for people who are going through abortions or deciding about going through an abortion, um, as well as just talk to somebody who, you know, has had one in the past or 
or has had to make the decision, you know, even somebody who has gone through with their pregnancy might even be something that's, that's comforting to talk about, but it's something that you just have to like, be careful with just yourself. And it's going to be different for everyone, how you process, how you grieve, you know, it's not going to be a grief of, you know, like you're losing some sort of, you know, it, it, it's, it's just so different for everyone that it's, it should be valid any way that you need to grieve. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what would you say are like some problems with just like some stigma or like access to abortion? I know that there was like a really good documentary that I watched that it's just like in some places where there's a really negative view of abortion, like anyone who's offering abortion care is really putting their life in danger sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, sorry, can you restate that question one more time? Yeah, no, no, just like, problems with like stigma surrounding abortion, how that can affect people that have undergone them or just like also like access, like how that can right. make it harder to have like access to it. Right. So um, people who have under like gone through an abortion, they might be seen from maybe their relatives or their friends as some sort of person that, you know, they are evil or they're selfish because they aren't thinking about the child that they were carrying or, you know, it's just there there is a line to be drawn and people who have gone through an abortion they made the decision for themselves and all that you can you know do is just think about why you did it and why it was a good idea and and your personal values nothing matters what anyone else thinks absolutely and it's like it's definitely a really really hard thing and like in any setting to discuss and to deal with. And I think that like, I mean, as for with basically like any of these things, I think that these are hard conversations to have sometimes, but very important conversations to have. Um, Mm -hmm. And so kind of like going forward, if there's people who want to have like more of these conversations, how would you recommend that they start these conversations, whether that be with parents or family members or trusted friends? Like how would you recommend to create a safe space to have more conversations like this? Right. So if somebody's thinking about getting an abortion and they need that support, I think a good way to start is talking about how it's your decision and nothing that they can say can affect the way you, you're going to change your decision. And first deciding that boundary between like what we're going to talk about when talking about my abortion. Um, and once you get that out of the way, you can talk to your support about what you need and just what you want to hear from them. You don't need to hear, some people might not want to hear validation, but just like that you'll be there for me, you know? And it's 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 definitely something that you need to <clears throat> set boundaries for when you're having the conversation. You don't want to say anything that's going to be triggering. Um, but it's definitely a great idea to have somebody who knows the full story and somebody you can trust that you can talk to and confide in. Right, no, absolutely. And I mean, again, Chloe, I just want to thank you so much for being here and having like, I know that for a lot of people, these can be like emotional conversations or like we said, Mm -hmm. like even just taboo and hard to talk about. And so I'm really so grateful and kind of to close this out, I just want you to like give people maybe some resources that they can find to like find more access to information or Mm -hmm. to help kind of advocate for sex ed or just sex health issues. Great. Um, So Planned Parenthood is a great way to start. But not only do they have information from themselves, but they definitely have other links to other providers 
or to other websites that have um, valid, credible um, information. So that's a great way to start because they have um, an access to portals like through other websites and other organizations, um, you know, and also just stay out of the um, media of like infographics and info posting before before you um you got to understand it before you post it is what I'm just gonna say right no absolutely yeah. absolutely and Chloe thank you so much again for being on this was really truly of such course. an important conversation thank you so much